Hello and welcome to episode number 157 of Turkey Book Talk, our final episode of the year. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode, we welcome Murat Sivilolu, Assistant Professor in Turkish Cultural History at Trinity College Dublin and the author of The Emergence of Public Opinion, State and Society in the Late Ottoman Empire, published by Cambridge University Press. The book makes the argument that the Ottoman Empire saw the spread of the crucial idea of public opinion independent of the state from the middle of the 19th century in various different fields. It followed a distinct path from Western European societies, but ultimately that process had similar results. Before we start with the interview, just a reminder here that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com. Also remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders, and ebooks. And heads up here for current members, the discount codes are are going to be updated for 2022 so do keep an eye out on the email sent out with the next episode for those Another perk for members is that if you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached, you'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Murat Sivilolu. The idea of public opinion is classically associated with the emergence of a middle class somewhat independent of the state in Western Europe in the 19th century. The Ottoman Empire is generally seen as being outside that process, but Murat Sivilolu's book argues that the Ottomans still managed to create a realm of independent social life where public opinion had a crucial effect on political developments and curtailing the state. With the emergence of public intellectuals, journalistic initiatives, publishing, educational initiatives and the spread of literacy in the urban middle class among other factors. So I started by asking him how he first developed this idea that underpins the book. I went to Cambridge to study something else. I was looking at the Crimean War and how the Crimean War affected the social and intellectual world of the um, Ottoman Empire. And when I was looking at the Ottoman sources, I realized that they were often referring to this abstract phenomenon, public opinion. You know, you read Nam Kemal, you read people like Zia Pasha, Cevdet Pasha, all they mentioned was more or less public opinion, really. So basically, I argue that public opinion was the most important political force in the Ottoman Empire in the 60s and 70s. 
It was a result of profound historical transformations, such as the removal of the Genesaries or the elimination of local governors. And I analyzed certain phenomena which might be deemed somewhat unrelated, such as book inventories and public borrowings as indexes of increasing public consciousness in the empire. I look at different societies, some of them official, some of them not official, as segments of expanding public sphere in the empire. And here I mostly argue that the trajectory that the Ottoman Empire followed was markedly different from those of the, the, the states in Western Europe. So the Ottomans did not have a, a separate bourgeoisie, but a, a cultural public sphere formed from mostly public servants. And these servants very often found themselves, you know, forming societies, civil societies in the 60s and 70s. And more, many of them were members of Freemasonry, Mason lodges, uh, which were mushrooming in the empire in the 60s and 70s. I also talk about newspapers a lot, obviously, how they were instrumental in creating public opinion. Here, people like Namak Kemal clearly played a central role. And of course, rising literacy levels and public education were important working mechanisms of this abstract notion that we call public opinion. Eventually, I showed that the deposition of Sultan Abdulaziz in 1876 had a lot to do with this. And I argue that public opinion was the most important force, some sort of mover and shaker of the Ottoman politics in the late 19th century. And you mentioned it just earlier there. Going back to the start of the period that you address, Mahmud II was a sultan who reigned from 1808 to 1839, and he was his great modernizing sultan. And you describe him in the book as the, quote, archetypical enlightened despot in the mold of a kind of Peter the Great. Uh, and he pushed through a number of centralization policies and military reforms, and most crucially, the abolition of the Janissaries in 1826. And this was a major event in Ottoman history. And you describe it as being very important for your story because it created favorable conditions for the emergence of an Ottoman public, essentially. Could you just describe for the layman what the Janissaries were and why their abolition was so significant for the story that you're telling, the argument that you're making? Obviously, the, the Janissaries emerged in the late 13th, early 14th centuries as an elite force of the Ottoman Empire. First, they were the, uh, the bodyguards of the Sultan. Eventually, with the increasing of their number, they turned into something like a kingmaker in the Ottoman society from the 17th and 18th century onwards. There's a huge literature now on, on the Janissaries and how they became an important component of public and political life in the empire, especially in the 17th and 18th centuries. For example, people like Baki Tezjan and Jamal Kafadar wrote on them extensively how what they called commercialization of the Janissaries and how they became embedded in the Ottoman society and lost their warlike qualities. From a societal point of view, this could be something positive. Some historians argue that they created a, some sort of loophole for public to escape from tyranny, from the tyranny of the sultans. But obviously, from a palace point of view, they were very problematic. They, you know, deposed quite a few sultans, again, killed quite a few. For example, Ibrahim was murdered by them or because of their involvement. Osman was clearly murdered because of a genocidal rebellion 
Osman II. So they were a significant force, and Mahmoud II knew that without removing them, it was impossible for him to start the reform programs that he envisaged absolutely necessary to save the empire. At that time, remember, we have this Muhammad Ali in Egypt, and he was kind of like a proving a, a good role model for the Ottoman elite with his success in Egypt. So Mahmoud, it seems that from the very moment he was enthroned, considered this plan very carefully. And eventually in 1826, after long deliberations and careful planning, he was able to get rid of them and abolish the court, which is known in the Ottoman, Ottoman history as the auspicious event, Wakai um, Hayriye. In my book, I argue that because of their public character, public representativeness, if you will, I argue that the Janissaries in a way represented, represented the public, um, some sort of old public, which was not really suitable for the changing conditions of the 19th century. And only with their removal from the political scene, a sphere for the formation of a public sphere became possible. For that reason, I argued that the removal of the Janissaries was probably the most important historical background for the formation of a modern public sphere or public opinion as we understand today. And much of the book is also taken up with the earliest steps of the press in the Ottoman Empire. It's obviously a crucially important arena for the formation of public opinion. And you talk about various titles. The first official newspaper, Takvimi Vekai, the calendar of events, was launched in uh, 1831. So five years after the abolition of the Janissaries. How and why did that newspaper emerge, that official bulletin? Mm-hmm. Uh, and why was it important? What did it include? What kind of articles were included in that newspaper? I mean, it is very difficult to talk about an immediate public influence of Takvim when it was published. You know, it was circulated in a very limited milieu. The publication figures were very low. But even just the need to publish the accomplishments of the government or promotions and demotions of Ottoman civil service clearly shows that there was a need for public support. And again, I connect this uh, with the phenomenon of uh, the abolition of the Janissaries. So with the removal of the Janissaries from the public political scene, the Mahmud felt this need to legitimize his rule. And during this commotion, he used public, the abstract concept of public support, as his biggest weapon. And I consider the Takvim Vekai and the emergence of Takvim Vekai as the embodiment of this need. You know, Mahmoud wanted to use Takvim Vekai as a new weapon against his enemies like the Janissaries or the Ayans, the local governors. I mean, it's very difficult to find an open declaration of such ideas in the Takvim. But when you look at carefully, beneath the very heavy Ottoman language, you can see that the public, public opinion and the public support, they were the most important ideas behind the formation of this new paper. And again, you can see the influence of Egypt. Only a few years previously in Egypt, Muhammad Ali started his newspaper, 
Vakayim Istriye or the events of Egypt, which was again served as a model for Mahmud II. The printing press was again something of a latecomer for the Ottoman Empire. It was introduced only in the 18th century in 1727, but it never had a, had an important effect on the Ottoman society up until the 19th century. So even though Takmim Vekai is not really important as a newspaper, it paved the way for the print revolution, which became extremely important for the Ottoman public opinion in the 1860s and 1870s. So for that reason, I would say it is one of the most important cornerstones of public formation in the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, and it was also, as I understand it, it was important. It was an important symbol because it was a kind of sign, really, that the authorities basically felt that they had to appeal to the public to convince the public to whatever degree of what it was doing. Yeah. I mean, even though we are talking about a very small public, just this need to legitimize your acts and um, make public know what was going on in the Ottoman Empire, this desire to publicize things was an important break from the uh, Ottoman tradition in which public did not, it didn't figure at all. You know, it was not a discussion. It was not important. It was not mentioned by Ottoman authors. So in the 19th century, you slowly and gradually see the emergence of public as an important force to reconnect it in the Ottoman politics. And I was rather interested in the curious story that you tell in the book behind the first non-official newspaper in mm. Turkish, uh, the Jeride-i-Havadis, Register of News. And that was founded in 1840 by an Englishman named uh, William Churchill. And uh, not much is actually known about him today. But it seems this newspaper basically pushed the official narrative and was pretty much just another official gazette, despite not actually being official. What was behind that title? Um, you know, I mean, as you said, we really don't know much about him. He's clearly, he was really a very interesting guy. After the Tanzimat reforms, you had lots of Europeans coming to the Ottoman Empire. It was one of the novelties of, you know, not having the Janissaries around. When the Janissaries were present, they acted as a some sort of barrier against the infiltration of foreigners into the empire with their removal that became much easier for foreigners to come and roam around the empire. So clearly Churchill was one of them. And as I mentioned in my book, there's a story behind it. So he was hunting around Kadıköy and he shot a Turkish boy uh, by accident and he was apprehended by the authorities. And the impression was that he was maltreated. And at that time, the British ambassador protested against Akif Pasha, who was the foreign secretary. And eventually this scandal caused Akif Pasha his position and William Churchill was awarded with a couple of privileges you know he was giving a decoration he was giving a privilege to start an olive oil factory and also apparently because of the connections he made during the incident or because of a promise he was given during the event he was also given the right to start the first the first private newspaper in the Ottoman Empire but as i said it was not really a private initiative it was always subsidized by the government and it never reached a, a popular acclaim so it was for many people seeing as an extension of the official newspaper the language was practically the same 
But still, I mean, it kind of shows you that there was a room for another newspaper, or at least some people thought so. And there were periods of success, especially during the Crimean War, because of the you know importance of the event, and because William apparently Churchill was clever enough to follow the war very closely through telegraph and other modern inventions such as photography. He was able to bring the news from the front, and his sales were substantially increased during that period. But other than that, it was a you know more or less a government newspaper. And basically, an effective government monopoly over published material continued until the 1860s. And that yeah. was when the first privately owned newspaper by an Ottoman started publication, Tajmane Arval. And that coincided actually with a real fluorescence of publishing. So from the 1860s to basically 1876, there was this huge explosion really of uh, journals and newspapers that sort of came out of nowhere, basically. And it wasn't just those, it was books as well that were being published. And um, there was just this huge, it seems like a new market basically for for these things and the, the public that was buying them. And so just talk more generally about this explosion in publishing around the, the mid-19th century. It's obviously a key point in the consideration of your broader argument. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden, as you say, you have people like Shinasi, Namik Kemal, Ziya Pasha, obviously they didn't, you know, they were a product of the expanding Ottoman public education. We have a new importance on foreign languages after the Greek uh, War of Independence. You know, the Greeks traditionally acted as the translators of the Ottoman Empire between Europe and the court. So with independence of Greece, uh, they lost their position, obviously, and the Ottoman Empire needed a new class of public servants who would be knowledgeable about Europe and European languages. So uh, you have a new class of people. The best example would be, again, Shinasi and Nam Kemal, who were either educated in Europe or were familiar with European sources and European educational methods came to the Ottoman Empire. And this period also coincided with the expansion of public education. So we have an increasing the phenomenon of increasing literacy levels. More and more people could read and write. Ottoman Empire was one of the first countries in which primary education became mandatory, uh, which can be surprising, but also makes sense because the public Ottoman Empire would, would gain a lot from education in that sense, you know, because of its uh, multicultural and multilinguistic state. So they thought that the public education would have some sort of leveling influence. But the moral of the story, public education, a new emphasis on on the expansion of universities, schools, created a new class of people who were very keen to know what was going on. And in the 60s and 70s, as a result, we have the proliferation of newspapers and journals and emergence of a reading public, really, uh, which became a very important component of Ottoman public. And also related to this was a very interesting and little known phenomenon of uh, Freemasonry. Um, And you explore this in the book. It's obviously uh, not actually very well known, I don't think, but it's very important, as I understand, uh, around this time, because it it basically cultivated a kind of way of approaching public life, basically. It was groups of men coming together in private, discussing things, forming opinion, debating, basically independent of the state. And many top Ottoman officials and other public figures were Freemasons. And I think it's a bit of an underexplored subject, actually. But where does the phenomenon of Freemasonry fit into this picture? 
It is really very interesting. You're absolutely right. And it is, I mean, there are some scholarly works, for example, Paul Dumont, French historian, worked on this phenomenon of Freemasonry in the Ottoman Empire in the 60s and 70s. Shukri Hani also wrote for a later period, for the early 20th century. But definitely there is a room for a, a new book, a new scholarly book or work on, on the subject. As you say, many of the high officials from Fuat Pasha, Kamil Pasha, Nami Kemal, Ziya Pasha, Mitat Pasha, they were all members of one lodge or another. Clearly, Freemasonry was considered something like an index of civility or civilization for the Ottoman elite at that time. Even a royal prince like Murat V was a member of a, a lodge called Prados or Progress in Greek. So it was definitely the fashionable thing to do for Ottoman intellectuals at that time. And probably they thought that it created some sort of unity with the West, right? It was a way for them to connect with the Western civilization, this whole idea of fraternity of man, regardless of religion or language, was something very appealing to the Ottoman elite at that time, because they were trying or they were struggling with European domination. And they thought this, again, probably some sort of Trojan horse, which would enable them to get into the European civilization in a way, in a relatively easy manner. So uh, definitely they thought, for example, Murat V made a, quite an impression on, on British, British nobility because of his um, uh, Masonic connections when he visited the country in the 1860s. So clearly, yeah, that was an important part of the Ottoman public and the public expansion during the period I cover. And I should also mention that there's also, I think that was for me the most important and interesting part of the whole story, the connection with the Bektashis and the Masons, the Freemasonry, you know, the Bektashi order was closely associated with the Janissaries. And with the abolition of the Janissaries, they were also expelled from different parts of the empire and they went underground. And many people thought that the, the Bektashis and the Freemasonry had a lot in, in, in common. And that kind of affinity is also very interesting, and especially for the Ottoman elite. And it shows how they incorporated certain European things into the Ottoman system by making them more local. And also around this time that we're talking about, 1863, the Darul Fununu Osmani, or Ottoman House of Sciences, was created. And that is seen as the first Ottoman university, perhaps misleadingly, actually, because it wasn't actually a university in the modern sense that we would understand it. It wasn't a degree granting body, but no. it was a kind of government organization that was put together to basically deliver public lectures on various branches of literature and science. And again, try and cultivate this public opinion in, in many ways or inform the public of various issues that they thought would be improving. Could you just talk about what was behind the founding of uh, of the Darul Funun and what did it symbolize? In the 1840s, the Ottoman elite was almost obsessed with the idea of public education. So at that time, we not only have the university, or at least the idea of university, but also we have the expansion of primary school, middle school, and the high school system all around the empire. And the university was like the crowning achievement, or was supposed to be the crowning achievement of the Ottoman education system in the 1850s and 60s. But it turned into some sort of quagmire, because 
because the structure was really expensive. And at that time, we had the Crimean War. So the people were obviously, the Ottoman elite was really busy dealing with it. And they had other concerns. There was some sort of economic crisis. Abdul Majid was also building a huge European-style palace uh, called Doma, Doma Bahce Palace at that time. So the, the economic resources were truly limited for the empire at that time. And they couldn't really put so much money or taught to building a university in the modern sense of the word. And it eventually turned into some sort of institution, a bit like the Collège de France in Paris, to give public lectures in different fields of science and education. Initially, it was thought to be some sort of higher educational institution for the formation of a new Ottoman elite. But when you look at it, obviously it was not a success um, and eventually turned into um, another Ottoman failure or another Ottoman reform which didn't really deliver what it promised. But still I talk about it because of the whole discussion of public and publicness around the phenomenon. It was a really important moment, especially, I mean, when looking back retrospectively, we can see that it had more or less no influence on the formation of an Ottoman intellectual class. But for people at that time going through 1860s and 70s, they thought that it was really, really important. And they talk about it a lot because of its possible influence on the formation of an Ottoman public. So I talked about it a bit, especially in the framework of new public lectures and how public attended and how they thought that it was the right to attend to such an event and how Ottoman intellectuals thought that you know, it was a this difference between public and private. I thought it was it was really a, a very interesting moment of public formation in the 19th century. Now, one of the chapters in the book is on Namik Kamal, and it's called Birth of a Public Intellectual. Namik Kamal was this hugely important figure, one of the young Ottomans of the time. Uh, he was born in 1840, died in 1888, and he was a very influential figure and a great public figure. And he was influenced by ideas of uh, constitutional government and the central importance, really, of public opinion in shaping accountable government. Could you just briefly describe for us who was Namik Kamal and why was he why was he important? Why devote a whole chapter to him? Well, I don't devote him a whole chapter, a part of a chapter. Um, uh, but uh, he was absolutely very important. He, what I call uh, the first public intellectual. He was coming from a good old Ottoman family. He's one of his grandfathers uh, was a grand vizier, and uh, his immediate grandfather was was a pasha. So he was somehow related to the Ottoman elite, and he got a really good education, Arabic, Persian, and eventually French. So he was familiar with the Eastern and Western traditions. He is known today as the, the, the poet of the fatherland in Turkey. But at that time, he was famous for his um, journalism. He was like the enfant terrible of Ottoman Ottoman newspapers. And in a way, he was the voice of public opinion. I mean, you have other writers, uh, other, other important intellectuals at the time, people like, for example, Inkilapçı Mehmet Efendi or Ali Suavi. They were all significant in their own right, but none of them had the Nama Kemal's influence on moving the public. And, and many people thought that he was the symbol of Ottoman public opinion. And he told as much. I mean, when you look at, when you read his articles, especially 
especially the ones published while he was in Istanbul, you can see that he was quite sure that he represented the Ottoman public opinion. So for that reason, I thought he was an important person to emphasize in my work. And the book ends with an account of Sultan Abdul Aziz's deposition in 1876. And here it's argued, or you argue, that unfavorable public opinion was actually the main motivation behind that event. And it represented basically the culmination of public formation in the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And that actually goes somewhat against the traditional narrative, which has tended to see that event as a coup d'etat, kind of separate yeah. from society and so just make that case for us. Why Why do you see public opinion and the politicization of society, essentially, as being what actually led to Abdulaziz's mm. overthrow? Um, I mean, when you look at the books published well, since, since the 60s and 70s and 80s, they unanimously depict the, the position of Abdulaziz, as you say, as a coup d'etat. There are one or two exceptions, but this is generally the accepted wisdom of the story of the Aziz's deposition. But when you look at the contemporary sources, you cannot really get away from the fact that it was all about public opinion. Everyone was talking about public opinion. You look at the newspapers, you look at the contemporary reports, the embassy reports, newspapers, people were very much aware that it was the public opinion and only the public opinion who could do such a tremendous political act, you know. Very often when you look at the historiography about the deposition of Aziz, you would see the Pashas mentioned as a some sort of, you know, they would be described as you know, they were not happy with Abdulaziz, there were personal grudges, and they thought that, you know, getting rid of Abdulaziz would be a good thing because Murat V, at that time, royal prince Murat was really popular with the public, etc., etc. But, you know, I mean, when you look at the events later on, you see that they were nobody. They had no influence over the public. And when Abdul Hamid wanted to get rid of them, such as when he wanted to get rid of Mithat Pasha, it was very easy. So I wanted to, I wanted to restore the public and the public opinion into the, into the proper place, if you will, of history. I wanted to show how actually it was, at least for contemporary people, it was the public opinion, the force of public opinion, which removed Aziz from the throne and nothing else. And I thought that it was a good a showcase of my arguments. And I thought, you know, how this public acted as a unanimous body, as an, as an important political force. And after Abdulaziz, Abdul Hamid II came to the throne. Actually, there was another sultan between them, but I can't remember his name. It was very briefly. Uh, yes. And you you also argue that uh, public opinion was kind of recognized by Abdul Hamid as having brought down Abdulaziz. So it was a really big fear of his. And he saw that Abdulaziz was basically overthrown by the power of the public and dangerous constitutional ideas. And that's interesting because Abdul Hamid is obviously today and at the time as well characterized as overseeing a rather repressive regime, very paranoid, cultivating this network of spies, despotic even. But according to you, that repression, it came from the fact that society had actually made great strides and had developed to a great extent and public opinion had really become a force. So that, in a sense, prompted a reaction in the form of Abdul Hamid II. He recognized that public opinion had become much more more powerful than it was before and that made him that much more paranoid it's a pretty interesting irony of history i think 
I mean, that's my feeling at least. When you look at from Abdul Hamid's angle, you can see that, for example, his uncle was deposed by the public, and then Murat V was installed to the throne after a big public revolution, as I call it. And then Murat turned out to be not so suitable for ruling. You know, apparently he was really uh, mad as a bicycle. So he was also removed from the throne after three months um, because of possible public reaction, because the Pashas were afraid that public would react again. So there was no chance of keeping him as a, even as a figurehead. And Abu Hamid became the sultan, but he didn't feel at ease. And with good reasons, I mean, immediately after his enthronement, there was a big public uh, rebellion, I guess, the Ali Suavi event. Uh, lots of people, hundreds of people, some say thousands of people, went to the palace to reinstall Murat V instead of Abdul Hamid. That opposition was crushed, that event was crushed, but obviously had an influence on the thinking of Abdul Hamid. And public opinion and the word public opinion or the expression public opinion became something of an anatoma for the Abdul Hamid for the remainder of his regime. It was not one of the words which was explicitly prohibited by the regime, but you saw less less of it throughout his long reign up, up until his deposition in 1908. Sorry, not his deposition in 1909. But after the revolution of young Turks in 1908, you started to see the public opinion and the expression of public opinion again freely as the most important political force in the Ottoman political scene. So Abdul Hamid was very much aware of its possible repercussions and its possible dangers. So he was almost allergic to the term. And for that reason, he was very careful to depict a good public persona, a good public image. You know, he was very careful about his Comings and goings, he wouldn't drink publicly, he wouldn't go to theaters, etc., etc., and he would present himself as a, a religious, hardworking sultan. And I suspect that this was because of the lessons he drew from his uncle's and his brother's experience. That was Murat Sivilolu. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 157, our last episode of 2021. Many thanks to everyone, really, for listening throughout the year. I think we've published some excellent episodes and I really look forward to many more in the coming year. Got some exciting ones already lined up. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3, or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, or via Twitter, or via our Facebook page, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe, and I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, before I go, let me just remind you once again to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter put together by the journalist Diego Cupolo. It's a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some truly excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, our first episode of 2022, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.